glad you're here, and um, as we love to say, it's always a joy to look out and see faces that we know and ones that we don't know. Um, <clears throat> if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship, uh, one of our other pastors. We're, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series. We're looking at the life of David. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the famous David in the Bible, King David, and um, we're about seven weeks into this now. So the passage I'm going to be looking at is in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there. But we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. I'm sorry about my voice. I knew that Metallica concert would come back to <clears throat> bite me. Before I read this passage, just think about this. You know, because... We're all carrying our cameras around now and our video cameras because we're carrying our phones around. You know, you can just photograph everything, and so now we do. And <clears throat> any get-together, any birthday party, any uh, public event, you know, we've, we've, we've got them out. But have you ever caught yourself doing this where you're about to do that and you think, wait, no, wait, wait a minute, this is a moment. Look at it. Have you ever done that? Like, don't look at it through the screen, this is important. You know, um, these two friends are about to say their marriage vows to each other, or, um, or this person is in tragedy right now. Don't stick your rectangle at it. You know, look, look this is a moment. And the reason I'm throwing that out to you is, uh, you know, this is a very Old Testament passage we're about to look at. This is King David coming into Jerusalem. He's already been anointed king, but he's had to wait a long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of you asked me this past week, how long was it in between um, David being anointed as a shepherd boy and then actually sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? And, and I don't know that we have hard and fast numbers, but the consensus seems to be about 20 years. Is that long of a wait? This is a high and holy moment in the life of Israel. This is not just an Old Testament passage, you know, where there's some Israelites and there's a king and there's Jerusalem. This is, this is a moment in Israel's history. Now, we started this last week, and we, we're, we're overlapping and reading that passage, but we're going to go further than we did last week. And I, let me just say this, and then I'll read the passage. I quoted what has to be the most famous English hymn uh, that, that most everyone knows last week, Amazing Grace. The second verse of Amazing Grace says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And you're about to hear why, if you, if you weren't here last week, that last week we looked at God teaching the Israelites, teaching David to fear him. But after John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace, God's grace, that taught my heart to fear," what does he say next? And grace my fears relieved. And, and what I want to really zoom in on this week is the same God, the same grace, uh, relieving bad fears. Okay? Second Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, <clears throat> who sits enthroned on the cherubim. 
And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. <clears throat> and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray together your prayer. We prayed that you would give us our daily bread and... You do, and you have, and you give us not just the bare necessities, but you give us plenty of food and great food and regular food, and you're so generous and faithful with it. Thank you, but you have said not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask you to enable us not to just listen to a talk, but to feed from your hand and eat your words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greenville uh, is a churchy place. I think everybody here knows that. And Greenville is the kind of place where even downtown you can get handed a gospel tract. And so uh, I was actually a little bit off campus, but I, I got this one this month. And I wanna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's pretty short. But the name of the track is, How Can You Escape the Damnation of Hell? And then under that it says Matthew twenty-three thirty-three, which is important because it's sort of quoting a, a question that Jesus asked in a very particular context to a very particular group of people. He asked that to the Pharisees, and Matthew 23 is when he really let, let them have it. 
But, so that's, that's the name of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's, here's how it starts. These are the first words. Your damnation will be a fearful thing. It will be lasting in its duration and sweeping in its consequences, yet you may never have been made conscious that your present state is nearly so desperate. So then you kind of get three or four main points, all caps. <clears throat> First, you are ripe for the judgment of God. Second, you do not deserve to escape the damnation of hell. Third, still all caps, who is able to save you from the just penalty of your sins? For, uh, fourth, your damnation does not slumber. All right. Uh, I don't know what you think I'm about to say next. <laughs> because what, it, especially if, if you haven't been around and, or, or just don't, don't know where this is going, <clears throat> what you might be expecting is for me to say next, boy, aren't we glad that we don't believe in things like hell? Aren't we glad that we don't believe in divine judgment? Uh, aren't, aren't we glad that we're good people and we know that we deserve better than that? And, of course, the problem with that would be you've got the Old and the New Testament just absolutely in contradiction to that. Uh, a masterpiece about the gospel, the New Testament book of Romans. And we studied that a little over a year ago in depth. And the way Romans starts is talking about some of those very things. So, is this a helpful track? And I would say to you that it is not. And the reason I'd say it's not is not because some of the, the bullet points aren't at some level true. But I've read this thing and reread this thing, and, and what I can't escape is that when you read this, you can't believe or even imagine that God is for you. That, that the feel of it is that just in his very nature, he is against you, almost rooting that you won't escape. And, and here's what I'm trying to drive at uh, as, as best we can as we look at this passage. Last week, and if you weren't here, you, you could see where the judgment and the scary and the, the fearful part came from. It's when the Ark of the Covenant, this is this one-of-a-kind, arguably the most important object on the earth, uh, it, that God identifies with so closely that even though it's not God and you don't worship the box, but he identifies with it so closely that in the Old Testament, people will act toward the ark or even speak to the ark like they're speaking to God. And that to touch it is death. Well, someone does touch it, trying to do the right thing, and they're struck down. And it made David afraid and the 30,000-plus onlookers afraid and not know what to do next, and they all kind of walk home. God is holy, and He is God. He's not manageable. You know, He is the Creator, and we are the creatures. Uh, he is infinite, and we're finite. And He is not on the hook. If anybody's on the hook, we're on the hook. But what I want you to hear coming through in the midst of all that is God is love. God is love. And that doesn't start in the Old Testament. That is who he has always been. And that miracle of miracles, he is for sinners. 
He does not like sin, but he is for bad people. If he's not bad for people, if he's not for bad people, there are no other people left. And so I hope something of that's going to come through this morning. Here's how I want to look at this passage. Um, thinking about, you know, grace first teaching us how to fear, and then grace relieving our fears, especially bad ones, slavish fears. He's going to squash me fears. So let's think about it this way. I want to look at the default. Do you know what I mean by default? Like default mode, the, the way something uh, automatically responds or instinctively responds. Given these prompts, it always does this. What's the default? What's the surprise? And then what's the memory? What's the default? What's the surprise? What's the memory? Okay, what, what do I mean by the default? Again, you heard the story. This, this, this is a celebration. We said that, you know, this is uh, at least 30,000 Israelites just going, going nuts. And it's not a nice little churchy, ga- <clears throat> churchy gathering. There, there's uh, horns and there's cymbals. And we talked about the castanets. And they're singing their songs and they're dancing. It's just fantastic. This man named Uzzah, he's walking alongside the ark. It's on a cart, and it's not supposed to be there. And if you go back and look at the law of Moses, God, in his love, had been very specific about it's to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And I guess for expedience's sake, or like, man, let's get this party started. Let's get David on that throne, and let's get the ark to Jerusalem. Let's not walk it there. This is several miles. Let's put it on a cart. New cart, never been used for anything else. Special cart. And it tips, and this man named Uzzah does what any of us would do. He threw his hand up there, and God strikes him down. And I just have to believe any of us in that set of circumstances would have done the exact same thing. And the text goes out of its way to say he wasn't killed by the impact of the ark or it hitting him. He was struck down by the Lord. And how did that register with David? Verse 9. What does it say? David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Think about when he says the words, the ark of the Lord, what's implicit now? Because maybe just a a few minutes ago, what that felt like was the ark of the Lord who is for us. The ark of the Lord who is for me. And what does it feel like now? The ark of the Lord who is upset. The ark of the Lord who's against me and against us. And so he won't let the ark come into Jerusalem. Maybe until he knows what to do and he doesn't know what to do. Now, before we go any further, I want to ask this question of all of us. And something that we talk about in here a lot is, you know, we have our public theology, sort of like if we were sitting in a little small group discussion and I asked you this Bible question or this doctrine question, how you'd answer in front of other people. We've got that kind of public official theology, but then we've got this real deep down theology. You know, God is in control officially, and I'm wrapped around the axle because God is not in control in my real theology. We all, we all do this. I do it. You do it. Okay, as best you can tell, here's the question. In your real theology, 
what is God's baseline disposition toward you right now? What is God's baseline disposition day in, day out toward you? What do you think he feels toward you and wants to do to you? Deep down, does it feel like he dislikes me and is against me? Because here's the thing. It's it's pretty much a truism that it's the default mode of the human heart that when any of us goes from sort of vague, general, abstract views about God to really like biblical, robust insight at, to whatever degree as to who he really is, especially about his holiness, that when we get some glimpse of that, the default mode of our heart is, well, then he must hate me or at least look on me with extreme apathy. David says, I, we cannot let that thing in Jerusalem because Uzzah was a good man, and it seemed like Uzzah was trying to do the right thing, and if that happened to him, none of us are safe. That's the default. All right, so what's the surprise? And, I, okay, I don't want to be irreverent with Scripture, but you kind of have to concede there's some humor in what happens next. Verse 10, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. First off, what is a Gittite? A Git, you know, I know that's obvious, but let me just go ahead and wade into that. Um, Now, a Gittite is somebody that's from the town of Gath. That's one of the major Philistine cities. That's the town that Goliath was from, Gath. So if you're from Gath, you're a Gittite. And the Bible's not clear about, is this guy a Philistine? So is he a non-Israelite? Or is he an Israelite who lived in that region like David and his men did for a period? The Scripture is it's not clear. He's just Obed-Edom the Gittite. And again, not trying to play fast and loose with the Bible, but you've got to concede the humor of, all right, this man was just struck down. We can't bring this in where we live. What do we do with it? And they kind of look over, and there's a home sitting there. And so they go over and knock on the door. We need to store this here. What is it? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Why are you storing it? Because someone touched it, and God killed him. We want to put it in your house. When are you coming to pick it up? We don't know. And I, I just, I mean, I have to believe, because Obed-Edom does have a family, I have to believe that whatever their bed or bed mat was like, that he and his wife that night are just lying in silence and just every so often saying, are you okay? I'm scared about this thing. Like, you know, look, can we check back with each other in 30 minutes? Okay, you doing okay? And so they make it through the first night, and then they're... Over this three-month period, there begins to be this felt sense of the blessing of God. What is the blessing of God? I know one of my children asked me that one time. Like, what does that mean when God blesses? I felt so stupid. Like, I've got a master of divinity and I'm ordained. I don't know how to answer that question. But the more I've thought about it, I would say, all right, for God to bless, that's the opposite of curse. For you to feel the blessing of God, it's like God rolling back the effects of 
the fall and a fallen world so that in your body and or your soul, you experience his generosity and his favor and his love and his approval and his power and and some of these obstacles and hindrances are removed. So for three months, not just Obed-Edom, the guy, but his family, and when it says his household, that means even things like servants, just the whole kind of establishment, things just go better. Relationally, they go better in the family. Their talk is better. What they do in the field is better. Their flocks are better. Lest there be any confusion, so that you don't even have to connect the dots, what does it say in verse 12, just so that you know that's not a coincidence? Verse 12, it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Now, let's go back to the question about, for real, what do you think is God's baseline posture towards you? Because here's what I want to say from the rooftops. Yes, God is holy. Yes, His holiness will manifest itself, especially when we uh, treat Him flippantly and take His name in vain, either verbally or through our actions. But God's fundamental posture is to be the blessing God. That God actually is love. And he didn't start that when he made human beings. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is such a huge deal. That God is not this just big, monolithic God, all caps. But this God, this one God, exists as three persons who have always been in relationship with one another. You can't have a father without a son. You can't have a son without a father. And there's a spirit that proceeds from both those persons. And none of us totally understand what all that means. But it is his very nature to love. And he didn't need other people. He didn't need extra company. He didn't make us because he's lonely, but he makes people and the Trinity reaches out to bring us into this love that already exists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you think that's true? Like Even before you get to the New Testament, do you really believe that the Psalms mean it when they say things like, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That the eyes of all the living look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. That it is God's inclination to bless. Because it should have come through loud and clear in the Old Testament. But man, when you get to the new one, Let me quote something very well known. It describes what happened when this holy God looks at a world full of people who are just kicking against him. (laughs) You know, like he's giving everything that anybody on this planet enjoys, whether it's your favorite jazz or your favorite dessert or your best friend or your favorite book 
or that walk or that experience or that memory. He's the dispenser of it, and people are taking it and almost using it as ammo against him. In fact, scratch almost. Using it as ammo against him. It's a planet where people are drawing in the air that he gives for free into lungs that he keeps operating at night when we have no control of it. And he looks on this world and he so loves the world that he gave. That that's fundamentally who he is. God is love. And when we talk about his holiness and how we should fear him, we don't have to play that down. God is love. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So what does David do? Now, that gets to the memory. And uh, if you're taking notes right now, I would ask you, just put your pen down for a second and just listen, okay? I won't rebuke you if I see you writing. I'm just asking if you are willing to put it down. I want to tell you about a guy named Michael Ward. Michael Ward is a British scholar, and uh, his area of expertise is C.S. Lewis, and really well, uh, well-educated man, Oxford, Cambridge, real deal. Uh, for a while, he lived in C.S. Lewis's house and took care of it. So, you know, there's like hacks like me that have read a few C.S. Lewis books. He like slept in Lewis's bed and knows everything. So, literally. Well, he... he uh, does these graduate degrees at Oxford and Cambridge, and he decides to do a Ph.D. about C.S. Lewis in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews. So he's working on this doctorate, and one day he's reading a poem by C.S. Lewis. Now, Lewis, we know about these Christian books. He wrote all kinds of stuff, and his day job was that he was an expert in medieval and Renaissance literature. So he was a medievalist. Michael Ward is reading one day a poem by Lewis about the planets. And it's the medieval view of the planets. Okay, the medieval view is the ancient view that there's seven planets. The first two are the sun and the moon. And that this is hard up in front. I feel like I'm on, you know, a game show or something. But you've got Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So those are the seven heavens, the seven planets. Ward is reading the part about Jupiter, or Jove. And he gets to this line, and it says, winter past and guilt forgiven. And a little bell goes off, and he thinks, you know, that sounds like a summary, almost, of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. If you've ever read that children's story, that there's, there's this Narnia, there's this winter, and it's from an evil witch, and the Aslan, the lion comes, and the winter ends, and Aslan accomplishes the forgiving of one of the main characters named Edmund. And so Michael Ward kind of goes, huh. And he starts looking more through this part about Jupiter, and he starts seeing all these themes that he recognizes are sort of reflected in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. So then he thinks, all right, there's six more planets and there's six more Narnia stories. So he starts thinking, like, what are the themes of Prince Caspian? War and woods, which are themes related to Mars. And then he starts thinking about the voyage of the dawn 
Treader, which has these themes of the dawn and sun and light and gold. And he said, all of a sudden, it was like this portal opened up, and he realized Lewis based these stories on the planets. And over half a century later, hardly anyone has picked up on it. And he said he proceeded to write the funnest Ph.D. dissertation in the history of the universe. And what's amazing is that, besides besides the fact that it's cool, is that it shows, shocker, Lewis's genius. Lewis was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Tolkien hated the Chronicles of Narnia. He thought it was so weird. And one of the things he thought was weird about it was he said, like, Jack, you're putting all these different themes in there, and they don't fit together. Like, Father Christmas, Santa Claus shows up in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What is Santa Claus doing in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? They don't have church. Until you stop and think about Father Christmas is a jovial figure. And then it's brilliant that every one of these seven stories, Lewis built an atmosphere into it of its own so that the line of which in the wardrobe has Jupiterness. And Prince Caspian is authored with Marsness. Does that make sense? The great author is God. Like the great capital A author is God, who, who writes with words and writes with lives and people and creation. Um, I want to show you what I think is the weirdest part of our passage. And I would say it's weirder to me than Uzzah being struck down. I'm not saying that's normal. But I want to give this to you. Go back and look at verse 13. It says, When those who bore the ark of the Lord... Now, do you catch that they learned that lesson? Okay, it's on shoulders now. It's not on a cart anymore. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he, David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, which is something worn by whom? Priests. And go down to verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And that tent was normally set up by Levites. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And by the way, earlier in Samuel, King Saul did that and got rebuked. And David does the same thing, and it's great. And when da- get this one. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, what in the world is going on here? And I'll just tell you, I could not find an adequate explanation for why David does these things. And I haven't read everything everywhere about it. I'm just saying, in my own studies, I kept asking, why is he doing that? That's not king work. He's the king, and he's not a Levite. If you're an Israelite, you couldn't just decide, you know, I think when I grow up, I want to be a priest. Not if you're from another tribe. You've got to be from the tribe of Levi. David is from the tribe of Judah. And he makes sacrifices. And he puts on the linen ephod. 
And then he makes another sacrifice. He sets up the tent for the Ark of the Covenant. And this, this one is the amazing one to me. After he has moved around the Ark of the Covenant, he comes out and blesses the people of Israel, the only other person who moved around the Ark of the Covenant and came out and blessed Israel was the high priest. Once a year. What in the world is going on here? And I would just tell you, there's a time when preachers need to say, I don't know, and I'm saying, I don't know. But I think we can at least say this. This was a high and holy moment in the history of Israel. And God, as the great author, moved David to do some very particular things. David, it says, was anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rushed on him. And under the influence of the Spirit of God, he did some very particular things that left a memory in Israel that when the great king, King David, when he came into Jerusalem, all the other kings started there. But when the great king, the golden king in many ways, came into Israel, he didn't just come in with kingness. But the way God wrote that day, David came in with priestness. Can you guess where I'm going with this? About what happens a thousand years later? That the son of David comes into Jerusalem. He's already been back and forth somebody. comes into Jerusalem as king. And here's what... David and his peers could never have imagined. When he comes in as king, the Messiah king also comes in as priest. And what no one could have imagined is that he wasn't just going to be high priest in Jerusalem. He's going to be the sacrifice. He's not going to sacrifice a burnt offering with a bull or a goat. He's going to be the high priest and he's going to sacrifice himself. Why is that so important? Because that is the key to how God can be holy, holy, holy. That God can still be God and not play down anything He is as God. And unholy people cannot just come into contact with Him, but, to quote John Bunyan, can kiss Him. That God's holiness and my badness can kiss each other because I have a king who's also a priest. And he doesn't just rule over me, but he took on himself everything that God's holiness should just smash about me and punish about me. He put it on him and he sacrificed himself as the great high priest And now he blesses his people and says, you're clean. And you're loved. And you're adopted. And you have access. And you are welcomed. And you commune with God. Man. And I don't don't read many things like this, but I've got to read this to you. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. You know, he's in London, Snows, and a great pastor in the 1800s. 
He said this. He said, you know, I cannot, I cannot liken it to anything that I know of better than the snow which melts in the sun. You wake up one morning, all the trees are covered with snowy wreaths, while down below on the ground, the snow lies in a white sheet over everything. The sun has risen, its beams shed warmth, and in a few hours, where is the snow? It has passed away. Now, get this. Had you hired a thousand carts and horses and machines to sweep it away, it could not have been more effectively removed. It has passed away. This is what the Lord does in the new creation. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us and the old things pass away as a matter of course. Where His blessed face beams with grace and truth. As the sun with warmth and light, He dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace. And man, everybody in this room has ice on their insides. You know, like for some of us, what the ice looks like is I like work more than I like relationships. Or it may be I like exercise more than I like talking to God. Or it may be I like pornography or I like vodka more than I like God's words. It can be any and all of the above. Everybody's got ice. What melts the ice? Is what melts the ice to be told the right thing to do? Does duty melt the ice? Oh, man, sometimes it'll make you feel colder. What melts the ice is really deep down where we really live, being convinced that God loves you. That God is for sinners. That the biblical God is not this mean God who has a nice son, and he says, okay, fine, work with them. Just don't, don't send them to me. Fix it. God the Father, who is love, sends God the Son, who is love, to be king and priest and live and die and rise from the dead to say, God loves you. Turn to him and have your heart melted. Turn to him. You cannot go to this God without him. He is too holy. You cannot just sashay up to him and relate. None of us can. He's too holy. But he says, but I want you to be able to. You were made to do that. Trust my son to be your king and priest. And my holiness and your badness can be right next to each other. Do you believe that? And here's the thing. Some of you have known everything I just said for a long time, and it's still hard to believe. It's okay if it's hard to believe. But turn to him and say, it's hard to believe. Melt me. Don't try to reason your way out of it. But for those of you who have never turned to him, you need a priest king. You need someone to lovingly lead you and rule over you who would lay down his life for you. That's Jesus. He's the great son of David who did what David couldn't do. And he did it because God is love. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that that day when David walked in, 
and, and danced in. And uh, celebration rang throughout Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant came in. Thank you that you built into that day kingness and priestness. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the great fulfillment of everything the Father wrote. And we need you. We don't even know how much we need you, but we need you. All life comes from you. So turn us to you and help us if we've turned away from you and melt the ice inside of us. And we ask it in Christ's name, your name. Amen.